Thank you, Heather, for reading God's Word for us. Good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I have the privilege of serving as the campus pastor here. It's so good to see each one of you. And again, if you are new, if you're a guest with us this morning, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. And uh, we're so glad that you have chosen to gather and worship together uh, with us here at Christ Community's Brookside Campus this morning. Um, as we prepare to look into this amazing passage uh, that Heather has just read for us, I'd love to just pause and pray and ask for... God's help in this. Father in heaven, we stand in awe of your just incomprehensible love for us, your people. And I just ask this morning as we look into this text that your Holy Spirit would be at work opening our eyes, our hearts, our minds to understand that you would refresh us with your grace this morning. We all come in desperate need of your grace. So Lord, speak to us through your word now. May we feel and think great thoughts of you and just be changed and ministered to by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, the beginning of the new year is almost here. You know, the world didn't end, so 2013, uh, we're getting ready to jump into it here in just a couple of days. And uh, I love this time of year, and it's a time of year when I always kind of get a little bit more reflective. I don't know if it's sort of the change of pace that happens uh, in the new, with kind of the holidays and family gatherings and vacation days and time off, just more time to think but it's this time of year I always sort of begin to sort of reflect on the, the past year as well as sort of anticipating what is coming ahead in the next year. And there's always excitement and anticipation for me when I think about the coming year on the one hand. I mean, there's uh, lots of things that, you know, Rachel and I are excited about doing, our family, traveling, trips we're going to take, things we're going to do. There's a lot of things that I'm excited about the church that we're going to be doing in the coming year. I mean, there's lots of things that I'm excited about when I think about 2013. Um, Whether it's, like I said, trips we're going to take, conferences to attend, books to read, movies I want to see, um, ministries to launch here at the church, friendships to deepen. There's so much that I'm looking forward to in 2013. But on the other hand, and, and this happens to me almost every year, when I start to think about sort of the year coming and the year past, it's just as easy for me to begin to kind of get frustrated, disappointed, sad even, um, as I sort of realize at this time of year, we always think so much about what's changed. You know, all the top 10 lists come out. We think about those, those kind of famous people who have passed away, all the changes that have happened in the last year. But what gets me sort of frustrated, disappointed, oftentimes can get me down is the reality of I look at my own life. And even though lots has changed, I realize there's so many things that haven't changed that I long for to have changed. It's sort of the time of year when I'm haunted by the, the ghosts of New Year's resolutions past. You know, I mean, it was like kind of back at this time last year, it was vitamins every day. And I think that lasted to like February. I mean, I think I still have, I don't even know if I got through one whole bottle of those, you know, daily vitamins, or this was going to be the year that we were really going to save a lot of extra money and, and tighten the budget, and, and then we bought a house, and so that, you know, that didn't happen, and it's just these kind of ghosts of New Year's resolutions passed. That's how I like to think about it. These things that I'm still the same person, and I was hoping that I would be able to change. Um, you know, I, I turned 30 this year, and I, I don't know maybe what was significant about that, but it feels like, you know, I thought by the time I was 30, man, I'd have some of this stuff really figured out. And, and I'm realizing that so much of it, I'm still the same selfish, 
you know, insecure person that I was when I, when I was 15 in so many ways. Um, and it's like, man, for 15 years now, I, I, you know, I thought, well, surely by the time I was 30, I'd have this stuff figured out. And maybe some of you a little further down the road will tell me, even when you're in the next decade on, that it's not any different. Um, but I think no matter where we're at in our, in our journey, whether we consider ourselves followers of Jesus or not, we feel this tension of the life that we, that we long to live, the person that we want to be, and, and the life that we actually live, and the, and the person that we actually are. Um, and when I get kind of stuck in this cycle of reflection, um, when I'm confronted with the distance between that life that I long to live, that life that I want to live, um, and the life that I actually live, I can quickly become overwhelmed. Uh, the sense of, of, of guilt or um, frustration can become overwhelming. And so what do we do in those moments when we feel that, when we feel that guilt, that discomfort, that frustration, that disappointment with ourselves, with others in our lives? Where do we turn? Well, I think in in our cultural context, if you were to ask a religious person this question, where do you turn in this moment? They would probably say something along the lines of, well, you need to look at the areas of your life that you're unhappy with, and you need to put together a sort of a plan, and then you need to work harder. You need to be more disciplined in this coming year. You need to work harder at this, um, essentially, the, the sort of the religious answer to this question is har- try harder, work harder, um, redouble your efforts. Now, on the other hand, if you were to ask more of a thoughtful, uh, non-religious person, a more a relativistic person, they might say something like, well, if what you really need to learn is not to try to change who you are, but just to really come to accept who you are, right? The, the, the self-esteem, that you just need to accept yourself for who you are, that you don't want to change all this stuff about yourself. You just need to come, okay, this is who I am, and come to um, accept yourself for who you are. The relativistic answer is essentially self-esteem, to learn to feel better about you are, who you are rather than to change yourself. However, neither of these approaches, sort of this relativist approach or this religious approach, will work long term. I mean, as with a religious approach, it may work for a while. You may gain some traction and, and actually make some changes. But the problem with it is that the harder you try, the higher the bar goes and the harder you have to keep trying. You just see how much more there is to be done. And you just end up back in that same place. And with the, the relativist position, you kind of, there's only so much self-acceptance. You, it still ends up focused on you, and you still feel the need for someone else to give you a sense of approval, to say that you're good, to say that you're, you're worthwhile. It's not, we can't get that enough from ourselves. And both of these approaches basically end up focused on ourselves. I need to work harder. I need to feel better about myself. But the gospel, on the other hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that's completely different than either one of these things. It doesn't say work harder or just work to accept yourself. In fact, it doesn't say focus on yourself at all. Rather, the gospel is all about who Jesus is and what he has done. It's a completely different focus. It's all about him and what he has done. So the gospel says, remember how deeply loved you are, how deeply accepted you are in him, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. It's not because of our own worthiness, but because of who Christ is that he loves us and rescues us. You see, we become like whatever we focus on. The more attention we give to something, the more like it we become. So if we focus on ourselves primarily, we're going to just end up being more like the person we already are. But if we turn and focus on Christ, we will eventually become more and more lovely because the more we focus on him, the more we become like him. 
But I think one of the greatest obstacles that we, uh, that Christians face in this is that we don't really believe that God is for us. That we don't really believe that God does or, or could love this person, that he could love me. I, I think so often we say, well, God loves other people, but I just, I don't really know if he could love me. And so when we think about God's love for us, it's, it's hard, I think, for sometimes for us to grasp it, to understand it, um, to really think about it as inseparable, like this passage that was read for us talks about. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. One, I think because in our world, separation in love is very possible. I mean, we families divorce, parents abandon kids, kids abandon and ignore their parents, um, Friends move away. Relationships grow apart. So we, in our day-to-day experience, we find that we often see love as something far less than permanent. But even if we're able to say, well, okay, I recognize that God's love is different than the people around me, that it is sort of this unchanging, unstoppable, uncompromising love toward me. Second, I think that even if we get to realizing that, that we still don't believe that God could really love us like that. Again, maybe he loves other people. Maybe he loves my, my kids like that, or maybe he loves my, my, my spouse like that. Maybe he loves my friends like that. But I don't know if he could really love me like that. I, one theologian kind of frames it this way. He says, the difficulty with many Christians is that they cannot persuade themselves that Christ loves them. And the reason why they cannot feel confident of the love of God is that they know they do not deserve his love. On the contrary, they are in the highest degree unlovely. How can an infinitely pure God love those who are defiled with sin, who are proud, selfish, discontented, ungrateful, disobedient? This is indeed hard to believe, he says, but it is the very thing we are required to believe. Not only as the condition of peace and hope, but as the condition of salvation. If our hope of God's mercy and love is founded on our own goodness or attractiveness, it's a false hope. So in other words, if we are looking to ourselves and saying, am I good enough to be loved? Am I lovely enough? We will always come up short. We will always feel inadequate. We will always doubt. We will always question. So we have to look to God. We have to look to Christ and what he has done. And when we begin to meditate on, to bask in, to glory in what Christ has done for us, then and only then will we begin to have this confidence, this hope that God indeed does love us in this way. And so this morning, as we kind of wrap up our Advent series um, that we've been doing through Romans 8, we want to do just that. We want to focus on this love that God has for us, the nature of it, how it works. We want to see in these final verses of this chapter that Christmas means that God is for us. Christmas means that God is radically for us, that he loves us with abandon. And so as we look at this text, first we're going to see that we know that God is for us because God's love stands up for us. And then second, we're going to see that God's love is for us because God love, God's love holds on to us. So first we're going to see that his love stands up for us and then that his love holds on to us. So first we see in verses 31 through 34, and if you have a Bible with you, uh, and there's a couple scattered throughout the pews as well, I'd invite you to turn and look at, at Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 31 through 39. Um, and in the, those first couple verses there, in this amazing passage, we see that God is for us because God's love stands up for us. It defends us. 
And Paul begins this passage uh, with a question in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to all these things? What shall we say to these things? He's saying, what is our response to all these things that we have seen? And, and Paul isn't just talking about what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 8. And it's been so great to dig into just Romans chapter 8 over the last four or five weeks. But he's saying all the way back to the beginning of the letter, Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, all that we've seen. What are we going to say in response to all this? This is the high point of the letter at this point. What are we going to say in response to all that we've seen? in the response to the fact that there is no condemnation, that slaves become sons, that we don't have to wait forever, that we'll never be alone, that God is always at work for the good of his children. What do we say in response to this? Paul says we say that God is for us. He says if God is for us, who can be against us? And this is where we see God's love standing up for us, defending us. Look at what Paul says in verse 32. He says, he says look, God didn't even spare his own son in his plan to rescue us. You see, when God looked at what it would cost, when he looked at the price to redeem you, to redeem me, he said that not even the price of his own son was too high to pay for redemption. So so therefore Paul says, if God didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things that we need in order to become like him, to be conformed to his image? So Paul says, if you remember last week, if you were here in verse 29, Paul says the goal of all this work of rescue, this work of redemption that God is at work doing, the whole goal of it is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he says in verse 29. So when he says that he will graciously give us all things, he's saying he's going to give us all things so that we might become like his son, that we might become little Christs, little bearers of Christ. And this is the good for which God is working all things together. See, the central problem that we faced was our sin, our rebellion against God, and the judgment of separation that it resulted in. However, Paul reminds us that God didn't spare even his own son to rescue us from that. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul is such a great, not only is he a great teacher, but he's such a great pastor because I think he recognizes that for men and women, for for students, for children who have so long lived under that condemnation, who have so long felt that condemnation, even once they hear that declaration that there is therefore no condemnation, they still feel condemned so often. You feel that condemnation. So he asks this question. Paul's such a great pastor here. He says, So who shall bring a charge against us? You feel like maybe there's people who might still bring a charge. Who can bring a charge against you? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And from the context of the previous verses, we know that God's elect, that means those people who have been adopted as sons and daughters, those whom he has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, those are his elect. Paul knows. He says, who's going to bring a charge against them? Who's going to bring a charge against the sons and daughters of the king? Who's going to do it? And the answer is in short, no one. No one will. God is the one who justifies, Paul says in response. And all throughout Romans, Paul has set up this picture of a courtroom. So this language of who can bring a charge and and this language of justification. This is all courtroom imagery. And so you can, Paul kind of imagines this courtroom. We are gathered in the courtroom. We are the defendants. We are on trial. God, the good and just judge, is on the bench presiding. And Paul has stacked up all this evidence against us. 
This is the first few chapters of Romans. And just as the verdict is going to, I mean, and it's irrefutable. I mean, we're literally guilty of sin. I mean, this is sort of the, the, the picture that we have, that we are guilty. There's nothing we can do to, to defend ourselves. We're in the courtroom. The judge is about to deliver the verdict. But instead of delivering a guilty verdict, he actually brings his own son and says, no, I'm going to place the guilt that belonged to you onto my son that you might have his righteousness, his goodness, his innocence. I'm declaring you innocent based on his righteousness. He's taking your punishment. He's suffering what you deserved. So then we get to be declared righteous, not on the basis of anything that we've done, but solely on the work of Jesus that's been declared by the Father That is what justification is all about. So Paul says, God is the one who's justifying. He's the one who's the judge, and he's also the one who's acquitting you. Who's going to bring a charge against you? There's no one left to do it. Except for maybe one person. What about Jesus? You know, it does say in the Bible, in John chapter 5, Acts 17, that at the end of the age, at the end of time, that Jesus is going to judge the world. So Paul asks in in verse 34, he says, "What what about Christ Jesus? Will Christ Jesus condemn us? No, Paul says, Christ Jesus, he's the one who died. More than that, he's the one who was raised. He's at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for you. Jesus, who is now our older brother, as we've been adopted into, his, into this family, we belong to him. He died for us. He is the one who rose from the dead for us. He's not going to bring a charge against you. The Father's not going to bring a charge against you. No one can condemn you. And in fact, Jesus does the very opposite of condemnation. He does the work of intercession, of interceding for us. He's constantly pleading our innocence. Rather than than standing before the Father saying we're guilty, he's constantly standing before the Father saying, this one is mine, this one belongs to me, this one is innocent, I have paid for them. The author of, of Hebrews speaks about Jesus in this way. He says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he lives always to make intercession for them. The Apostle John puts it this way in John, 1 John chapter 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, Jesus serves not as the prosecutor He serves as our defense attorney, constantly showing forth evidence of our innocence. The evidence of his own blood, of the scars in his body, that these sins have been covered, that these ones are no longer under condemnation. So what do we do when we begin to feel this weight of guilt, this weight of condemnation, when we feel accused? Well, first we need to recognize that there's really kind of two types of, of, of condemnation. There's sort of imagined uh, accusation and sort of real accusation. Um, and I'm going to get to the real accusation, the sources of accusation in a moment, but there's a lot of times we just imagine this, these accusations against us, right? That all of us, because of our, our insecurities or whatever, we, we take something that someone says to us and, and it feels like an accusation. Um, I, you know, I realized this in my own life just this past Monday. On the, we had our Christmas Eve service here. It was a great time. I, I know many of you are were there, and after the first Christmas Eve service was over, one of the members of our team came up to me and, and said, "You know, Bill, uh, the service was really good, but because the room was darker and there was a lot of people coming in, could you maybe try to speak louder 
during the welcome. It was just hard to hear or to get people's attention in the back. Now, to any one of you and probably to any normal person, that seems like, wow, that's a great tip. Thanks so much for letting me know that. In the moment, I heard it as, wow, you're doing a terrible job. You are a terrible pastor, and this service is going awful. Now, that, had nothing, that person's intention wasn't at all, but you, you, sometimes we hear things through this, this lens, right? And so immediately, I'm sort of becoming passively aggressive, kind of defensive, like, well, tell me more. Like, how can I do it better? And really, all the while, I'm thinking, oh, I wanted you to tell me was how awesome the service was. I didn't want you to give me... We, we all get into these kinds of things. So sometimes it's just imagined. You know, this person isn't actively bringing accusation against me, but, you know, we often are a source of, of accusation. But there's a couple other sources of real accusation against us um, that the Bible talks about. First is, is Satan. In fact, the, the name, the evil one, this, op, this opposer, and the name Satan actually means accuser. Um, Revelation 12 speaks of, of Satan like this. It calls him the great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan is actually identified as one who is constantly accusing the children of God before the throne. He's constantly saying, look at, look at them, look at Bill, look at him, how, look at how sinful he is, look at how much judgment that he deserves, how much punishment he deserves, how little he actually cares for anything good. So Satan, second, uh, our enemies, I and mean, there's Paul and, and his readers at this time, I mean, they faced a lot of enemies, whether it was the, the Jewish leaders or the, um, the Roman government. I mean, they faced a lot of persecution, a lot of charges were being brought against them, accusations being brought against them. And, and we may not have enemies quite like that in our context, but many of our, of our brothers and sisters who follow Christ around the world, whether it's... Um, in Iran or Syria or other places, uh, Iraq, face constant accusation and persecution uh, from enemies. And third, and, and probably most compellingly, a source of accusation is, is our own sin. We feel the weight of this record of wrongs that's been, Paul uses this language in Colossians, this record of wrongs that, that was put against us. So we feel the burden of our own sinfulness. We feel it telling us that we are guilty, that we deserve death, that we will never get better, that we can never change. So how do we respond when we feel the weight of these accusations? Whether they're real or imagined, how do we respond in these moments? In these moments, we have to rejoice that we have an intercessor. Think about it like this. Every time that you experience that accusation, it's an opportunity for you to remember the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to yourself, to trust the gospel, to treasure the gospel. Every time an accusation comes, the moment you begin to feel that guilt, it's actually an opportunity for the gospel to do great work. When, when you feel the weight of that accusation of, 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 of the lie of Satan that you are still condemned or that your own sin, your own guilt, respond like this. I love this. This is from Martin Luther. I love Martin Luther's boldness. And probably one of my all-time favorite quotes is this. Luther said in a sermon, he says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is there I shall be also. Or respond like this with the words of the second verse of, of Before the Throne of God. 
When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. For the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We must constantly remind ourselves of that truth. We must speak it to ourselves. We must speak it to one another daily. Uh, Paul Tripp, who's a great pastor and, and counselor, he says, you are the most influential person in your life because you are the one who speaks to yourself the most often. You are, you are the one who's telling you things most often. So what are you saying to yourself? Are you proclaiming this truth to yourself? You see, when you have Jesus as your intercessor, as your defense attorney, you can fire your inner lawyer. You can fire that little self-righteous defensive voice that always keeps popping up when people give you very helpful advice about how to make the service a little bit better the next time. You can fire that person because you have an intercessor who has made satisfaction on your behalf. So God's love means that he is radically for us. It means that he stands up for us. He intercedes for us. And next in verses 35 through 35, we, or verses 35 through 39, we can see that God is for us because God holds on to us. God is for us because he holds on to us. In verses 31 through 34, Paul asks the question, who can bring a charge against you? Who can condemn you? But now, in verses 35, he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of God? So who can condemn? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. God's love for his children in Christ is one of the primary marks of believers in Romans. Very back at the beginning of the book, in Romans 1-7, Paul refers to his readers as those loved by God and called to be saints. In Romans 5-5, Paul explains that as children of God, we can rejoice in suffering because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In Romans 5-8, Paul adds that God demonstrates, he shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us in these verses is not merely an emotion or a feeling, but it's an action expressed. It's an action expressed in the very giving of his own son for us. And so when Paul asks the question, who shall separate us from this love of Christ. This who is an all-encompassing, anyone or anything, any possible conceivable person or thing or force. And we see this in Paul. He gives this sevenfold list, this kind of list of completion of things that might possibly separate us from God. And what's interesting is if you look through Paul's own biography, his own life, every one of the things that he lists in that list, tribulation, hunger, nakedness, danger, even execution, he ended up facing. These were all things that Paul faced or would face at the end of his life. So he speaks at a place of, of personal experiencing these things will not separate you from the love of Christ. So Paul's point is if that you are experiencing anything listed in these verses, you need to remember two things. One, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And two, that these things can't separate you from his love. If you're experiencing anything in that list of seven things, tribulation, nakedness, hunger, despair, these don't mean that God doesn't love you and they can't separate you from his love. Tribulation and distress, I mean, that's a big, open, wide open category. Tribulation and distress, what does that look like? It looks like, it looks like cancer. 
unemployment, infertility, divorce, credit card debt, difficult marriage, foreclosure, car repairs, rejection by a boyfriend or a girlfriend, failure on an exam, failure to get to your college of choice, being too tall, too short, too fat, too thin. All of those things represent tribulation and distress. And whenever you're experiencing any of those things, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you and they can't separate you from his love. Persecution doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, can't separate you from his love. Famine, hunger, poverty, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, can't separate you from his love. Nakedness, homelessness, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, can't separate you from his love. Danger, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It can't separate you from his love. The sword, in other words, death by execution, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you and it can't separate you from his love. And then after this list, Paul quotes part of Psalm 44. This kind of, he says, you know, like we're being like led like sheep to the slaughter all day long. Psalm 44, if you go back and read it, I encourage you this week maybe just to go back and read Psalm 44. It's a hymn of, of the pe- God's people sang when they were suffering some great calamity at the hands of their enemy. And they were seeking God's help, and God's help didn't come. It's a cry out, say, God, why are you not helping us? Why are you letting us suffer? And I think Calvin puts this so well. He says, the point of verse 36, the point that Paul quotes this thing from the Old Testament, why does he just kind of throw in this little quotation in the midst of his, his speech here? Calvin says it like this. He says, the point of this is that it is no new thing for the Lord to permit his saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. It's no new thing. Paul's saying this is the way it's been before time, that God has worked in ways that we don't understand. And sometimes it means that we're suffering in ways that we can't possibly understand. But no, this is nothing new, and that he has your good in mind, that he loves you, and that these things can't separate you from his love. So in verse 37, we hear the emphatic no. No, none of these things can separate us from Christ. And what's more, not only can they not separate us from Christ, but we are more than conquerors in them. We are more than conquerors in them because not only is Christ able to hold us in the midst of those things and not allow to separate us from his love, but he's actually able, this is what we looked at last week, he's actually able to use those things, to work those things together for our good, to conform us into his image. That's how futile, ultimately, the, the enemy's plans are against us, that we are more than conquerors. Even the greatest suffering, not only can it not separate us, it actually gets turned into things that work for our conformity into the image of Christ. Paul is completely convinced that nothing can come between the love of God and us. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. I love how he paraphrases the last part of this passage. He says, Nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love. Nothing at all creation, Paul says, can separate us. You know, really there are only two categories of things in the world creator and creature. There's only one thing in the creator category, God. Everything else falls into the creature category. So Paul's already told us that the creator is radically for us, that he's acquitted us, that he's interceding for us, and that everything else that he has made is under his authority, under his submission, ultimately works for the good of his children. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of Christ. God is for you. He's radically for you. Do you believe that? 
nothing, not even your own sin, your rebellion as an adopted child of God can separate you from his love. He will do whatever it takes to bring you to that goal of glorification, that goal of being like Christ. He will do whatever it takes to make you lovely. You see, in the end, the only thing that can release us from the fear that we aren't loved is to ultimately trust that Christ loves you more and holds on to you more tightly than you hold on to him. That he loves you more, that he holds on to you more tightly than you hold on to him. John Campbell Sharp, who was a Scottish poet and literary critic, he lived in the mid-1800s in Oxford, and he captures this beautifully in a poem he wrote called In His Hands. I just want to read one stanza for you. He said, I grasp thy strength and make it my own. My heart was blessed with peace. I lose my hold and then comes down darkness and cold and rest. And then he says, let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. You see, our great comfort isn't our ability to hold on to God. Our great comfort is in, our unwa- in his, his unwavering, unstoppable, his glorious grasp of love that holds on to us and which nothing can loose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you've given us Romans chapter 8 in our Bibles. And we're so thankful for the conclusion of this chapter where you remind us that even though it seems so inconceivable for us, that you love us with a love that can never be separated from. Father, I pray that that love would give us such a deep assurance that we would become truly humble but confident people who look like Jesus more and more every day. Pray this in his name and for his glory.